Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I'm starving. What do you want to eat? I'm not sure. None of these places have really struck a chord with me. Look, there. How about Suprema Provisions? It's Italian, has a high rating, and we know the owner. It is fabulous, but we had Italian last night. Okay, okay. Then I guess we keep trudging. How about French? There's bougerie. Ooh, oh wait. Let's wander down this street. It's really pretty. Oh, but food! What about food? Food is pretty! The West Village just has such a charm to it. I love it. I love lucky charms. Salt and battery, and tea and sympathy. You can have your choice of either Great British grub or afternoon tea or fish and chips. Mm. Oh, come on. How can any of those not tickle your fancy? Okay, okay, let's do it. Clearly, you are not going to make it. Thank you. I can taste those chips now. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hilarious show, One Man, Two Governors. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Do you prefer eating or making love? That's a hard one, isn't it? But don't worry. Hopefully we'll make it easier after we discuss today's incredibly funny show, One Man, Two Governors. Direct from England, this show brought audiences to the side split, two side-splitting tiers with its brilliant elements of physical comedy, improvisation, wit, and all-around good humor. But before we can get to the main course, we need to go over the ingredients. So, let's lay the groundwork. One Man, Two Governors is a play by Richard Bean, an English adaptation of Servant of Two Masters, a 1743 Commedia dell'arte style comedy play by Italian playwright Carlo Goldoni. The play Uh, The play replaces the Italian period setting of the original with Brighton, 1963. The play premiered at the National Theater's Littleton Theater from May 24th, 2011 and continued until September 19th of that year. 
Nicholas Heitner directed James Corden in the starring role of Francis Henshaw, with associate director Cal McChrystal responsible for the physical comedy. The play contains songs written by and performed by The Craze in a skiffle band style led by Grant Oldling. The music is written and composed by Grant Oldling. The show then made its West End debut at the Adelphi Theater, with Corden still in the lead role. Previews began on November 8, 2011, ahead of an opening night on November 21st. The run ended on February 25th of 2012 and subsequently transferred to the Theater Royal Haymarket on March the 2nd of that year, with Corden's role being taken over by his first cover, Owen Arthur. The London production concluded a three-year run on March 1st, 2014. Between 2011 and 2015, the tour would mount three tours in the UK and a separate tour internationally in 2013. This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. The playwright was Richard Bean, composer Grant Olding, director Nicholas Heitner, Physical comedy director Cal McChrystal, set and costume design Mark Thompson, lighting design Mark Henderson, sound design Paul Arditi. The show arrived on Broadway at the Music Box Theater on April 18, 2012, and played a limited run of 159 performances, closing on September 2, 2012. The show was nominated for several Tony Awards that season and would dine away with one for Best Actor in a Play for James Corden, who played Francis Henshaw. So with that, let us take you down to 1960s Brighton, England. Two Governors is based on The Servant of Two Masters by Carlo Goldoni. While the plot is largely the same, this version renames the characters and moves the location from Venice, Italy to Brighton, England. Goldoni's characters were based on Commedia dell'arte's stock characters. While Richard Bean certainly took influence, his are more naturalistic characters. Pre-show, there is a skiffle band, The Craze, singing Brighton Line. Act 1, Scene 1. In Charlie Clench's house in Brighton, Charlie, Alan Dangle, Pauline Clench, Harry Dangle, Charlie's bookkeeper Dolly, and Charlie's old friend Lloyd Botenting are celebrating the engagement of Pauline and Alan. Francis Henshaw, the minder for Reverend... Uh, excuse me, revered London gangster Roscoe Crabb arrives to claim money owed by Charlie. He and Dolly openly flirt, with Francis offering to take her away to Mallorca for the holiday. Roscoe was originally engaged to Pauline and has returned to claim her back. The guests are incredulous as they thought Roscoe Crabb was recently murdered by his twin sister's boyfriend. Roscoe enters, demanding to have Pauline back, now he has now that he has returned, but both Pauline and Alan refute his claim. 
Charlie agrees to pay his debts. Once alone, Roscoe reveals to Lloyd that she is actually Rachel, Roscoe's sister. It is true that Roscoe's dead, and her and her boyfriend, Stanley Stubbers, are planning to elope to Austria, or Australia together. Act 1, Scene 2. In a Brighton street, Francis tells the story of how he was recruited by Roscoe slash Rachel. It's easy enough work, he says, but he's permanently hungry. Stanley Stubers enters, who is keeping a low profile following the murder of Roscoe. He offers to employ Francis as his minder and deliver letters for him while he keeps a low profile at the Cricketer's Arm Inn. Despite already being employed, the prospect of having more money for food is too great. Francis's other boss, Rachel, enters and gives him more jobs to do, including another letter to deliver, which immediately begins confusing Francis. Alan enters, demanding to see Roscoe and vowing to kill him. Hearing this, Stanley becomes terrified Roscoe is still alive and hunting him. Francis re-enters with letters for both of his employers. Confused and hungry, he inadvertently eats Stanley's letter, so gives Stanley one of Rachel's. Through this, Stanley discovers Rachel is in Brighton. Act 1, Scene 3. Back in Charlie's house, Charlie is trying to convince his daughter to marry Roscoe with the financial benefits it would involve, but Pauline insists she wants to marry Alan for love. Rachel, as Roscoe, arrives to follow up on her money. Alone with Pauline, she reveals her true identity, telling Rachel to go along with the planned wedding to give her and Stanley time to elope, leaving her free to marry Alan. Act 1, Scene 4. Inside the cricketer's arms, Francis's anxiety and hunger is reaching a boiling point. With the help of the old, decrepit waiter, Alfie, and an unfortunate member of the audience, he struggles to provide lunch for both bosses while keeping them separate from each other and satisfying his insatiable hunger. Act 2, Scene 1. In the street, Harry tries to convince Charlie to call off the marriage between Roscoe and Pauline, but he refuses. Alan continues to vow violent revenge if he cannot marry Pauline. Pauline enters and Alan turns on her, accusing her of adultery. Pauline leaves in a fury at the accusation. Act 2, Scene 2. Dolly meets Francis in the street and gives him a letter for Roscoe. The two of them flirt, with Francis taking on the persona of the dashing Irish lover Patty to improve his confidence. As Patty, he arranges to take Dolly away to Margate for a holiday. Roscoe enters with Charlie, who still hasn't given Roscoe the 6,000 pounds he owes. Francis's two employers nearly meet, with Francis managing to keep them separate at the cost of beating a beating from both. Act 2, Scene 3. Back inside the cricketer's arms, Francis is doing ironing for Roscoe. He discovers a picture of Stanley in Roscoe's things. Stanley enters and discovers Francis with a photograph. Francis concocts a lie involving the fictitious Patty to explain why he has it, which leads Stanley to conclude Rachel is dead. Devastated, he leaves. Roscoe enters 
to see his diary. Francis accidentally gives him Stanley's diary. Francis uses the same fib to explain how he had the diary in his possession, leading Rachel to conclude that Stanley is dead. In her grief, she reveals her identity to Charlie and Francis. Act 2, Scene 4. Charlie tells Harry that Pauline is welcome to marry Alan. Alan enters, and Charlie tells him the truth about Rachel. Alan is delighted. Act 2, Scene 5. On Brighton Pier, Rachel and Stanley independently mourn the death of the other. Lloyd enters and reunites them. Rachel tells Lloyd to go and get Francis so she can reprimand him. Rachel and Stanley agree to marry and stay in England. Lloyd re-enters with Francis. Francis uses the lie of Patty again to talk himself out of trouble and convinces both Rachel and Stanley to give him 150 pounds each to take Dolly to Mallorca. The police turn up and they all exit in a hurry. Act 2, Scene 6. Back in Charlie's house, Charlie and Alan try to convince Pauline to forgive Alan. Eventually, after much groveling, she does. Lloyd, Rachel, Stanley, and Francis enter. The two couples are reconciled, and Harry agrees to be Stanley's lawyer to have him acquitted in the murder trial. As they discuss Dolly's upcoming trip with Francis slash Patty, his deception unravels, and he admits Patty is made up, and he was the employee of both governors. Stanley and Rachel forgive Francis and give him the time off to go to Mallorca with Dolly. The end. Let's talk about the things we loved. And the things that we think maybe could use improvement, because I have to sing that part. Wow. You don't like me singing the part? No, I don't. Little Linda Belcher? Yes! No. Okay, well, let's discuss the show. Um, well, I, for one, thought I absolutely love this show. I also... Absolutely loved this no. show. There's top drawer. Really, really top, top drawer. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's a show that needs to come back, Mame. Yes. Um, no, it was. I love the story. Uh, I love the comedy and the comic comedic timing. Mm-hmm. Um, the pratfalls, the gimmicks, um, the mixed use of music and story were fantastic. The physical comedy just everything it just all worked yeah it was i remember laughing so hard i almost had to excuse myself because i had to go to the bathroom i mean it it depends on the situation oh god that's a terrible joke ah, these are the jokes <laughs> but folks. no this this show was quite lovely in every aspect it was funny it was visually appealing this it, was the funniest thing i'd seen on broadway up till the play that goes wrong. And mm-hmm. I was so impressed at how well in character everybody was able to stay. And I'm sure, you know, at some point they know where all the jokes are coming to that. But I mean, to have, you know, almost a thousand people in a the theater that are all laughing 
at at something. I mean, that's contagious, you know. There's there's great one-liners like, "Are you an actor? Does it show?" Yes, it's the way that you stand as if there's an audience over there, you know, and he's doing the typical actor pose where he's like, like trying to cheat pose. out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at you, but I'm cheating out. And I was just like, these are the worst funny, but like so funny jokes. It's like the ultimate dad jokes, you know? And Well, and it's like you're, you, it's, there's something to be said for something that can be funny when we know that the funny's coming. Yes. Because so much of this farce, because this is a farce, um, is set up on, you know, uh, storylines that have been around for centuries. Yes. And so we know where the funny lives, yet for the uh, company to still just come out and give us that and make us laugh as hard as we did, it just really speaks to their delivery. Uh, That is brilliantly put. Um... Thank you. To keep us as audience members guessing. You know, you think it's going one way, but it actually goes another way. And it, that, is, that is a mark of true brilliance. And for it to be such a classic tale, based off of such a classic tale, but still to feel so fresh mm-hmm. and new, but even dated still. It wasn't based at the time then, you know, it wasn't based in 2012. It was based... In 1960s, in the 1963 Brighton, England. But it still felt fresh and new, and it was like, these jokes feel like they wrote them today. You know what I mean? Like Yeah. So. I think to help us kind of break everything down, because I could just sit there and go, I like this show a lot. Let's go ahead and do our usual breakdown. All right, I'll get out the cardboard and do the dance. <laughs> That's yeah. break dance, not oh, break sorry. down. Yes, if I could break dance. Anybody who was on the live event, they now they saw us, and I'm like, hi, I don't dance. But anyway, um, let's start with the set. I thought it was gorgeous and dated, and dated in the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, it did look and feel very 1960s, but particular, particularly, particularly. Uh, 19, like British 1960s. There's there's a look from that time period that looks just like you see it and it, you immediately go, oh, that's Britain mm-hmm. of the 60s. And that's what the set with the color palette they chose and and just every, the wallpaper and everything, that just looked and immediately read 1960s. England. Well, and what I love also is everything was very like traditional theater flats. So yes. it wasn't realism on stage for any of the set pieces. Everything was definitely like, here are these flats to make us think that we're in different areas. It and so, looked like a play within a play. Yes. Like very, I mean, that was not the intention, but it very much felt that way. Like they were, they were putting on a play kind of for themselves but we actually were watching that play within a play if that if that makes kind of yeah sense. well but it comes from that Commedia dell'arte which uh, you know history. more of <clears throat> yeah well because in the history of Commedia dell'arte there was basically a stock set and a stock set of characters that basically were put out on stage and a story was put together um and so there were certain looks and scenes that always had to be there so you had to have ways of making them iconic and one of those ways was to always have flats that were, you know, they were the same flats that you would use in different stories. Um, just so that we could tell, oh, this is the market. This is the forest. This is the villa. And if you think about it, we had the street, 
inside the pub, the room, like the hotel room, the house, the dock, and the house. That was it. Exactly. So it comes from that era, but for them to be able to create it on stage with such a beautiful palette and just give us that really like play like feeling um, while still making it a functional set was just beautiful. Like I think about um, there's a there's a scene where there's a lot of physical comedy. Um, oh, you're talking about the end of Act Two when uh, end of doing, Act One. I mean, end of Act One where they're doing the lunch service. Yes. And you've got the stairs in that mm-hmm. <clears throat> with and the suit of arm, the coat of arms. Or yes. The, the, the suit of arms, suit of arms, the the night suit. Yes. Yeah, and the and armor. Armor. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I'm only on my first cup suit of coffee. Suit of arms. Suit of arms. You know, it's got arms anyway, and a suit. Um, yeah, I, and those stairs, I mean, but it looks like the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Like the walls, it's, you know. Well, but but the, my, my point is that it was very, it was very functional, yet it still had that two-dimensional, three-dimensional feel. Well, that it, yes, 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 yes. No, 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 no. That, that, that's my point is it, it, it has that two-dimensional look. That, that was exactly it. And it has that look of being... I don't want to say community theater production or what have you. It just, it has that look of being a lower. No, it has a look of being a play. But, but, than... no, but not like a, like when you think of a Broadway play, you typically with sets get a realism kind of thing. They create a whole world. Where not this, always. But with this show, it looked like more of a simple, what you'd think of kind of putting a, like a low budget set, but a high quality of a low budget set, if that makes sense. It makes sense, but I think what the 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 point is less about quality. Um, the point is about overall feel, and you want there's there's a difference. Basically, when you're dealing with a set, you're dealing with either a realistic set that is in realistic dimensions, or you're dealing with flats that are indicative of locations rather than being physically. Yeah, yes, and you don't have these, in this show, you don't have these giant set pieces floating in to create rooms. It is like you say, it's flat. It's more hearkening back to a classical time of theater. Yes, which is still, it's something that's definitely very much implemented in a lot of different types of shows. But you don't see two-dimensional things as often anymore. Uh, We can agree to disagree on that, but it was definitely, you have either... Three-dimensional realism or the two-dimensional right. function, and this is definitely a two-dimensional functional set. And it worked, but it but it worked. It was necessary, and it added yes. to the story. And it real and like I said, the color palette and everything that they did, it just read nineteen sixties Britain, and it was amazing. And then also, um, this is the second show I believe we saw at the Music Box. I'd never seen the music box curtain down. Remember they dropped it in between scenes and then the cre- the 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 band came out. Um, uh, oh, I can't remember their name right now. Um, the Craze. The Creel. Creed oh. came out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, the Craze came out and they would perform these musical interludes in between. And what I loved is um, the curtain is red in the music box but we'll, and we'll get into that actually later but actually the, the curtain is yellow is it yellow yeah well, I say it's gold oh but anyway but you know that gorgeous curtain and then they would perform and it was great um 
and 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 that's gonna lead me to transition into because this, the the craze would come out and they were actually performing as you came in into these beautiful costumes. They were so the gentlemen were in these beautiful Buddy Holly costumes. See what I did there? We're in costume land. Um, yeah, they the costumes were iconic '60s. So the first costumes you see are the craze, and they're in these great suits. Um, and even the guy that wears glasses, like I said, all the way down to the glasses were tailored, and they were these brilliant Buddy Holly looking glasses. Um, I love that the men were uh, uh, the men, except for two, um, Alan and. Um, Rachel wants to marry Stanley. Stanley, thank you. Um, we're all in three-piece suits. Mm-hmm. And but it was the definitely of the '60s where they were printed patterns. Like you had twill and you had checkers and stripes and yes. all sorts of yes. plaids. And, yes, yeah. yes. And then, um, then, then um, Alan, who was who was who um, um, Pauline wanted to marry the actor. Mm-hmm. Had this great, he was in the all black with that turtleneck, that beatnik look with the leather jacket, you know, just totally red 1960s. Um, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, and and then, then that leads me to my favorite part, uh, which I keep calling poodle skirts, but they are not poodle skirts. They're, they're swing dresses. Swing dresses. These dresses that were just incredible. They had just the right amount of flair. Mm-hmm. They look kind of like tulips. Yes. Yeah. And. Um, all the women were in them except for Dolly. Actually, there was one other as well, but I can't remember which character they played. Um, but they had the the uh, pencil, skirt. pencil skirts. Um, and the short pencil skirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was important because, uh, particularly for Dolly, because Dolly is, Dolly is, from the word go... She's the strong feminist character on stage. She runs that show. She doesn't take orders from nobody, even though she's doing what people are telling her to do, but she's doing them on her terms because she's working everything from behind. Francis thinks he's got her fooled, but she knows. Well, and that's that's another... Uh, remember, all of these characters are based on stock characters from, from Comedia, Comedia dell'arte. Um, and so you do... I can't remember what that character is. The only one I can really... The fierce one. <laughs> <laughs> right. The only one I can really remember is that Francis's character is Harle- is the Harlequin, um, which is a, in the family of the Zany, which is kind of the clown, um, but the Harlequin is always known for being always hungry. I... I, I... I can relate. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, the the silhouettes of everything was very 1960s without everything being like mod and go-go boots and stuff like that. No, it was definitely like well, it was 60s um, silhouette, but a variety of 60s silhouettes. So this is the important thing. So London 1960s was very important to the fashion scene. Very important to the fashion scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think and 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 anybody who's a fashion historian or a fashionist out there can correct me, but I feel like in America, the nineteen sixties fashion scene that we contributed was more of the hippie fashion scene, you know. Yeah. And and, then, and when we think of the go go boots and all of that kind of stuff, that came from London. Mm-hmm. And I say London because this is Brighton, which is a city that's. South, closer to the southern, you know, southern coast of England. So that would be like here in New York. You know, New York is a fashion city, and and we're talking about you know Syracuse. 
So there you're going to see those those shorter skirts, but you're going to see those the, the influence of the 60s color. Yes. And whatnot. And and with that, I would also I want to lean to um the hair. Yes. And I thought the hair was really important to to bring up because um the, you so for the men you had everyone mostly having these clean cut looks except for Alan, the actor, who had that perfect long hair that like kind of fell on his forehead. That shaggy. Yes. Well, because that's the interesting thing about the uh, 60s, 70s, because we're coming right out of the 50s where everything needed to be clean cut. You had the 40s where everyone was clean cut because of the war. Um, and then when we get to the 70s, everyone's like, no, nah, we're, we're growing it out. The 60s, 70s. They're, 60s, they're beginning to grow it out. And then 70s is when we really commit. Right. So we're just getting kind of the shag. We're breaking away from the clean-cut, potted hair. I mean, I mean, the Beatles are the perfect example, in my opinion. You know, they first had that clean-cut, but then they started letting it go. But we're not full-on long hair quite yet. Right, we're early 60s right now. But I think the highlight of the hair really is, lies in the women. You know, you had, like, Pauline who had that... Bouffant. No, no, no. She had the... the um, Almost like the, the, what's her name from Hairspray? Um, the lead. Oh, Tracy, Tracy Turnblad. Looking hair. Mm-hmm. Where she kind of had the where bump it? up and then it, it swooped down and yeah, flared so out a little. Yeah, so it's Tease It to Jesus. Yes. But the the Dolly hair, the had the bouffant. The really like wrap tight and up. Yeah, she had the bouffant going on. And I thought that it was great that we had both looks. And what I loved is with Dolly being the, um, almost like the secretary. Mm-hmm. That was the look of the of, of the time, mm-hmm. and so that I I love that 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 was present that that was there. It paired well with the costumes, and the costumes paired well with the hair. It all worked. It was a complete look, and as you've mentioned, it completed that silhouette. I think if Dolly, who was in that pencil skirt ensemble get up with the sweater in that, had the teased it to Jesus, flirt, uh, whatever teased out hair, you know, the Tracy Turnblad, I'll call it, um, that wouldn't look quite right. It, mm-hmm. it would look really put together down below, and then it's like, why is your hair like that up top? Mm-hmm. And vice versa, if if Pauline was in this swing dress and then had this bouffant hair, it's like, mm, you look like you're, you know, it's it's the, it's a mullet. It's, you know, business up front, party in the back. It just doesn't work. It doesn't, it's giving mixed messages. I mean, there are messages. moments where they do work, but I get what you're saying. So uh, I thought that the, the, the everything worked well. Um, the last person that I feel like we have to mention, um, <laughs> who needs mentioning, we have to talk about Alfie, good old Alfred, because um, mm-hmm. he's the actor is not as old as he is um, played. Yeah, so he really is done up um, quite well. Um, the hair is great. The costume is fabulous. Um, and I would he even go like as far as, as the makeup. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because he does. He he looks like, you know, so old and hollowed out, and yet there he's still working. And it's like, how is this guy, you know? And of course, he's got the whole heart thing mm-hmm. to give him a shock. And I'm just like, oh my god! And they do it perfectly. It's it's so funny, you know. So I I had to mention that. I felt like I had to mention good old Alfie. Yeah. Um there is one other thing I want to mention in this and this is a trigger warning for any of you who have a hard time talking or listening about body hair. 
Um, but there is a scene where they talk about a gross amount of body hair on one of the characters' backs. Isn't it, um... I don't remember who, which one it is. It's, oh... He's Stanley? Cr- Stanley. Yeah. Uh, Ra- uh, Rachel's boyfriend. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, because she's in love with it. She loves it. It's she wants to run her fingers through it. Yes, it's... And they and they actually show it. Yes. And it's hilarious. And that actually, this you being a wig person, I remember. Um, so this is two thousand twelve. So you were. Was it two thousand fifteen? Two thousand twelve. And so you were in your second year of studies as a wig person. Uh-huh. And I remember when we saw this, I looked at you and I went, so. Is that your area of <laughs> coming up with, or is that a costume? And you just went, nope, that's something I'd have to create and build. Because, you know, that actor did not have that hairy of a back, but oh, when, when Rachel takes off that shirt, whoa, mm-hmm. <laughs> a whole nother forest grows and bright, and you know. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. It was with, great. With that, <laughs> let's um, transition into the lighting. Um, okay. Do we have to, though? Want to talk more? All right, no. The lighting. Um, it was fabulous. Um, I love the use of colors during the musical, (laughs) during the music all interludes. Um, so this is what I wanted to get at before. So the curtain drops. I thought it was red. You think it's yellow. That's great. But I remember, what I remember, and I think we can agree, is orange. Yes, orange. See, there, I knew we were going to get somewhere. So with You the know, lighting, yellow and red together make orange. Get out of here. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> Science makes no sense. Go with your feels. Beetlejuice. Um, anyway, yeah, so they... Uh, all, most all the musical interludes were in orange, which doesn't sound like an appealing color, but it worked. So well, and of course, the one of the main colors for the the promotion for their for the logo and stuff was orange. But um, I just remember being so clever and with the color of their uh, the men's outfits. I think they were purple or red suits. Um, and then I know that the three girls that came out to sing they were in yellow. They were yellow dresses. Um, so it matched really well. And then of course, when Francis uh, would come out to play. Like on the xylophone, his brown suit looked well with the orange. And then they had the one horn guy that was in the light blue. That worked well with the orange. So I love that that palette was there. And this is going to sound like a very weird palette. But um, their color palette outside of basic lighting was orange, brown, and yellow. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like a very off-putting palette. But... It gave us that old thing. <coughs> Feeling while still giving us that brightness that we need in the comic. Yes. And it gave, yeah, it, it's that like looking, you know, when you watch old footage of like the 60s, it's got that like. Yellowish. Yeah. Sepia. Yes. What a what a $10 word for this early in the day. Good for you. Yes. Two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Very early. Look, that's early when you get home at midnight from a Broadway show. Um. So, yeah. So. It, it, I thought that palette worked perfectly. And then complementing it, of course, was the, the costume colors. Um, so the next part of the lighting I want to talk about is I love the mixed use of lighting. So uh, 
We've talked about how it felt like a play within a play. Mm-hmm. I felt like the lighting was good in that it like made the play real. But it was also lit similar to the way that the set was flat. So that it was lit at maybe angles to make it have that two-dimensional or that very obvious play feeling. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. So there were there were lights to light the stage and to give us clear view of what was going on and obviously to create that space, you know, uh, the feeling of the street, but then there was also lights at a certain level of brightness or angle that created these shadows or brightness that emphasized the 2D. So does that make sense? You know, that, that really helped to emphasize the play within a play. What you were talking about. Yes. Yeah. And I, so I'm glad that you were able to mention um, the the fact that it was, that that was part of it back when we were talking about the set. The Comedia dell'arte. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how lighting would have affected, like. Cause well, because it would have been done outside. Um, so it would have been very bright, natural light, but they probably would have had trees for shade. Um, you know, so I think it's just, it's just interesting. And there's a certain, like we've talked about many episodes before, there's a certain level of brightness that you expect from a, um, comedy. So, and I think it definitely delivered on that. Um, with that though, I think this is be the best time to talk about the direction. I agree. I thought the direction was really, really fabulous. Uh, the director was able to bring all the elements together perfectly. Yeah, it was very cohesive. Everything belonged to the same world, um, which was really nice. Especially considering, you know, this the the material is a um, modern take on a a I mean a historical theater style. Yes. And I absolutely love the way the story was told and carried through, but love that it didn't interfere with the comedy or vice versa. Mm-hmm. They almost felt like they were on, there were two tracks as part of a railroad. Okay, explain. So you had the story, so, you know, two, two tracks to make up a railroad track. You had the story that went along and we understood how the story went, but the actual comedy end of it didn't necessarily, particularly the physical comedy, didn't interfere or block the story and the story itself didn't interfere or block the comedy so they weren't fighting for the limelight well Um, and they were able to step out and live in the comedic moments exactly exactly disrupting the flow of the story and one thing i want to send up to give a send up to the director is that the comedy was perfectly timed and perfectly planned and that's not an easy thing to do because you know Comedy exists in the timing. Either you have it or you don't. And not only does an actor need to have it, but a director needs to have an eye for it and understand it so that it can be perfectly timed and crafted and also have the ability to live and breathe. I mean, to do a show, particularly a comedy eight times a week, it still has to be fresh and new. It can't be like, oh, here comes the trick. You know what I mean? Like, you st- it still has to be invented and new because well, nothing as new the actor, truth. Exactly. Well, and as an actor, you can't anticipate where the joke is going to land. You have to be able to know where you're going while still existing in the moment before the joke happens. Right. Um, so I think that everyone did a beautiful job with that. Um, I definitely think this um, 
a director understood where to play up the Commedia dell'arte because um, Commedia dell'arte was definitely very clowning. That's the early version of clowning. Um, so there was a lot of exaggerated movements and melodramaticness. Um, and they did a really good job of just existing in that world while still making it very realistic. Yes, yes. Um, and the last thing that I'll, I'll throw in there with the directions, I felt like it was perfectly staged and paced so that it peaked and flowed at just the right speed. Um, not only was like the rule of three really well executed, and for those of you that don't know the rule of three, basically it's, you know, when you're doing a joke or a bit, you never do it more than three times. After three, it kind of gets old. So the rule of three was great, but everything had a good ramp up, a good lead up. Nothing went too far. Nothing went too fast. It was all, it, 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 the show itself was breathing and with the audience. We all had these great guffaws, but then it like scaled back naturally and it raised up. It's like an ocean, you know, the waves kind of crashing over you mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I thought that was really, really great. And when, this, when, the, when the show needed to speed up, like the feeding scene or like the dock scene where we're trying to meet Patty and he's panicked and he's got to try to keep the two governors apart you know mm-hmm. when the pacing called for quicker it didn't get so crazy that we as an audience were like this is too much we just felt enough anxiousness and started going oh my gosh how's he gonna he's gonna slip on a banana you know mm-hmm. just enough to 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 laugh at someone else's slight misfortune right um also let's talk about the music i was gonna say sound but really the musical tone Yes. Well, I mean, this is a play that really, I mean, had music. It had the band, which I keep wanting to call Creed, but it's not Creed. There are no wide open. The craze. The craze. There are no arms wide open here. Um, Well, and it just, uh, I liked it because it gave us those pauses in between scenes. Yes. um, Which was just a lot of fun and definitely. A good palate cleanser. Yes. To help keep you very much like, you know, not overwhelmed with constant comedy if that makes any sense, while still having a good time. Yes, and the music itself was very 1960s British, which was great. You know, um, I love the fact that there was a live band. This is the first play I'd ever been to that had a live band performing, and it felt very 1960s, you know, British, and I was like, yeah, okay. Um, It didn't have that 1960s London rock sound, like the, you know, the Who, the Rolling Stones, the monkeys and that, but more of the mid, the Midlands or the suburbs. I mean, we are in, I wouldn't say we're in the Midlands because we're, you know, Southern England. Um, but, you know, out, outside of London, England sound, you had that more of that country folk sound that came from England. Yes. You know, so I, I really appreciated that. The show has had several notable performers, including James Corden and Susie Tiffs. about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. I mean, one thing that I have keep gone keep going back to is it's a modern it's a modern version of Commedia dell'arte. Right, and I I was racking my brain about the impact the show has had. And the only thing I really could come up with was it was a huge success for Commedia dell'arte in American theater, particularly Broadway. Cuz I I can't remember in recent 
And if I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong because I'm sure I'm naive, but I, I'm thinking recent since we've been coming to Broadway. And I can't think of a show that was hardcore comedian LRT like this. No, because it's not something that happens very often. Now, there's a lot of influence in modern comedies of Commedia dell'arte, but it's gone through so many transitional phases so that this was really like a study in going, okay, we've had all these phases of comedy develop. We're going to take it back, find the, like, some of the first, like, woven beginnings of comedy as a performance, and then we're going to go off of that. It's kind of like going back to your roots. It's kind of like when you're trying to make like a bolognese and there are all these different versions of how to make a bolognese, but then you go back to the basics of it and then experiment it with yourself. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and so it was really like, what can we take away from Commedia dell'arte as a way of presenting comedy? Um, because it wasn't it wasn't strictly Comedia dell'arte, and there's not a lot that is, you know, this kind of fusion of Comedia dell'arte. It's it really is kind of unique in its in what it in what the source material is. Um, but that being said, it brought it to the focus of of it being done again. Um, I know theater students learn about Comedia dell'arte in history, and there are some places where you can practice it and there are people who still perform it but it's not mainstream performed especially in the u.s um so for something to come out of that style that has been as widely a success it's just kind of it's it's kind of nice to see um that kind of comedy if if we're talking about comedy um, in a historical sense. Does that... Am I making sense? Yes. <laughs> and I think that leads us to societal impact, which I would say it reintroduced or introduced to a wide swath of people the art form of Commedia dell'arte and improv and other styles of comedy. Right. Because um, it tapped into a lot... This show tapped into a lot of different styles of comedy, not just, hi, we're going to have a quick you know, exchange of words or we're going to have a funny line of dialogue. This had everything. It had the physical comedy, the pratfall, the funny faces, the great dialogue exchange, the innuendos, all of that was there, you know, and, and so audience members got to see that. And for some, it was the first time they got to see all of that all in one. Right. And I think that really giving a modern context of how to take these classic like stock characters and put them together in a story um, was just really great for audiences to see and it gave us another source of material to change things up in the comedy because we you know it's important to offer all different types of comedy um, in a modern audience that can be performed all around the world um, so it's nice that audiences have this as an option to view um, yeah so is the show still relevant? I think, once again, talking relevancy, sorry to kind of jump in and answer your question, but I've been thinking about this one. Um, comedy is always relevant, and so this is more like a, a study on comedy. So I think it's always going to be relevant, but whether or not that's relevant for the Broadway stage would be the question I'd pose. See, in my opinion, as we reemerge out of the pandemic, of course we all could use a laugh. We could use, you know, 
a lot now more than ever, you know. And this show provides laughs by the barrel. I mean, mm-hmm. we were howling with laughter. So I can honestly go either way with this show. I don't think this show is art for art's sake, and I don't think this show was meant to inspire anybody. It was meant to just entertain. In the right hands with the right comedic lead and control of the show, it could be a perfect, you know, perfect show for an audience that's yearning to escape. That being said, it is also... This is also a great time to see what other new playwrights can do to quell our anxiousness uh, with humor. So, you know, nothing's funnier than the truth. And I think that I would like to see what else can be done with all the craziness happening in the world. What can playwrights now do to talk to us about that, you know? Um... And so, to me, this is still a perfect piece for regional, collegiate, even community theater. It's still a very uh, um, easily reached piece, easily connected piece. So, I could go either way. I think it definitely could play on Broadway again. No problem. This is one of those shows that could play anywhere and be successful. Yeah, because it's just funny. It's just a good time. pushing my luck. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. We had the good fortune of getting to see the show actually, now that I think about it, twice, once in 2012 here on Broadway, and then we saw it at Pioneer Theater. That's true, we did. On 2015, I think it was. I don't know. Um, And the Pioneer Theater production was great. It was a standout performance, the great regional theater production. Um, but all of our stories actually come right back to the Broadway production. So um, so with that, um, I guess we should start to tell our tales. Um, I love this show. Uh, again, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Until the play that goes wrong, this was the funniest show. I laughed so hard my body hurt. Yeah, it was an incredible afternoon out. Um... So one of the the first thing I'll, I'll tell the tale of the tale of as old as time. Um, I remember um, we were. If you remember, were we in the orchestra? I feel like we were in the orchestra. We were in the, we orchestra. Were in the orchestra for this. I was like, we were in the orchestra. I know we my brain keeps going. We were in the orchestra, and I was like, yeah. Wow. So there's a part in the first act where Francis is addressing the audience, and he goes, "Does anyone have?" Anything neat, just anything, you know, a mint, a pasty, or something, and just a random audience member tosses up like half a sandwich. And James Corden just stops and starts to laugh and totally breaks. And he just goes, Does that, did that really just, did you? Because it was a monologue. Yeah, it wasn't, he wasn't like legitimately expecting food, but someone, he just goes, did you really just toss a sandwich on a Broadway stage? You know, and he couldn't believe someone really just yeeted like half a sandwich onto the stage. And I was like, this has happened. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, we spend five minutes of James Corden 
doing a, another monologue about how apparently at Broadway theaters now he can pick up, he can do his grocery shopping, you know, <laughs> just by by peddling to the audience. And it was hilarious. And that was about halfway through the first act. Well, that leads me to the next thing, because you were the one that, that, that corrected me on this. But to be fair, because of the sandwich thing, I wasn't far off. They have an audience member come up uh, towards the end of the first act and to help with the food serving scene, to help hide food for Francis. And so they get an audience, a quote, audience volunteer. And um, they're, you know, they hide in the suit of armor, mm -hmm. among other places, with all this food. And at one point, um, oh, who is... Alfie? No. Um, Rachel's boyfriend. Stanley. Stanley. I keep wanting to say Charlie, but that's not it. Stanley comes in with a fire, uh, with something on fire, and the stage manager busts in and sprays this audience member with a fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is in the middle of, like, tons of physical comedy. Alfie has fallen down the stairs, been hit with a cricket bat. Like, you were losing your mind, and then that happens, and you're like, Oh my gosh, that poor audience member in their outfit has been ruined by um, all this fire extinguisher. Da, 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 da. And so I was in shock. I was like, this show, I mean, are they going to get sued? And then hopefully someone goes, well, you know, that's a plant. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a cast member. And of course, at the end of the show, when they came out to bow, I was like, oh my gosh. And they were in the program. I didn't catch that. <laughs> but here's the thing. But in my defense, the sandwich. <laughs> so I was like, this is incredible. We've had a sandwich that got thrown and an audience member just got sprayed with, you know. And I was like, this is insane. And, and Hope and I were on an improv team at this time, so we were just living for all of this stuff. Well, yeah. after the show, you know, this is after the Tony, so James Corden won the was, Tony. Yeah, it was one of, it was the... It was the week. Yeah, it was after. the week after the Tonys. Yeah. So James Corden came out. We got to meet him. He was on his way to pick up his son. He was so nice because he was in a hurry. But he did stop to sign this our is, playbills. This was a newborn baby. Yep. He stopped to sign our playbills. He even got a, we even got a picture. And now he's James Corden. I mean, you know, this is the amazing thing is not that he wasn't a big star then because if you... I mean, he was a Tony Award winner. But if you look back at, at, at the career of James Corden um, before we Man Two Governors, I mean... He has had a career. In fact, I remember watching um, the uh, the movie The History Boys. Mm -hmm. You know, the play The History Boys. Well, there's a movie version of it. And he's in it. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I started looking into what else he's done. And I was like, James Corden, you've done so much. And he is so funny. And I was like, okay, okay. And now he's like, he's a completely different entity than what yeah. we knew him as. And, and so then now, I'm, now I'm just like, I met you. I have a picture with you. Like, I did that you know but it it was such a delightful afternoon and i was like okay this is great. i remember i think it was like one of the last shows if not the second to last show we saw before we left that summer no it would have been in the very beginning wouldn't it have been i don't remember i'd have to look in our theater journal but it was a good time and i, I think just... it was the last weekend before we left because i feel like i think we saw this on a sunday yeah i feel like we saw it on a sunday but so. it just i just remember being so incredibly happy and just delighted to be able to tell the cast how impactful things you, were. See, this is how good it was. You remember 
everything about that. You remember it was an afternoon. You remember it was kind of cloudy. You remember... See, I remember it was ridiculously <clears throat> sunny and James Corden and you were both sweating buckets. I, see, I remember it was cloudy and humid. Well, I remember it was definitely humid, but I remember the sun and I don't remember if that's because we were outside the music box, which has that golden... Right, right. Door well, no, but that's the thing is you you, you remember all of that. That all you know, it's been ten years since we've seen this, but you still remember all of that. And that's how good of a show and good of a day it is. So mm-hmm. guys, theater's back. Theater's back. And and we really hope you can join us at a show soon. We save the seat next to you, so come join us soon. You'll be able to catch one man, two governors sometime soon near you, I'm sure. If not, you should, someone at your theater company should do the production. Fair. Yeah. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our new backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Uncle Bibby, The Joy Drops, Pierce Murphy, Mike Darling, and Billy Murray. Friends, so dear.